The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about um, a subject that we all sort of, um, you know, feel a little antsy about, I guess, because we don't know the answer to the question. And that is, what happens when we die? So I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, she's going to tell me, how does she know? (laughs) Well, I actually don't know. (laughs) I know what I would like to have happen, but um, my guest today is going to be able to fill us in. Um, You know, this question of what happens when we die is becoming, even though we don't like to admit it to ourselves necessarily, um, has become more of a nagging question as we wake up in the morning, turn on the computer, look at the headlines, and there are more shocking and more unpredictable uh, kinds of stories about people dying, towns dying, countries dying, um, you know, airplanes falling who knows where, um, all of this that we, that we couldn't have written the day before. And so it does kind of make the question of what happens when we die more urgent-seeming, even though it's something that makes us really uncomfortable, most of us, to think about. So my guest today, Celeste Goodwin, is Matthew's mom. She also has lots of other um, uh, honors. But um, for what we're talking about today, the key is that she's Matthew's mom. And Matthew, as she will tell you, um, is her four-year, well, He's, he's now older, but he was her four, four-year-old son who had um, a near-death experience. Now, we have become, I was just telling Celeste before we got on the air, that because there is a growing body of people who um, claim to have had near-death experiences, you know, this used to be more rare. I mean, it's still relatively rare, of course. But because, you know, some people have written books or go on television or radio or, you know, and talk about this, it makes us more cynical about whether this actually could be true because there could be lots of uh, secondary gain, as we say, for people to come back and say these things. But when it's a four-year-old child, that does seem to have a little more weight since there would be less um, secondary gain, you know, um, for this child to come up with some story. Of course, there are other things that we'll talk about as far as what, what, how a child might... Um, you know, what could be going on in the mind of a child, too. But, but <laughs> since 
for, for purposes of, uh, since we don't know, since none of you listening <laughs> alive out there, listening to this show can tell me any more than Celeste and her son can tell you about what happens when you die, I think we should listen to both of them. So, um, so Matthew actually may be joining us if, his, if he gets uh, back from school in time. But in any case, we have Celeste. And Celeste and Matthew have written a book about this, a new book called A Boy Back from Heaven. So, Celeste, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, let's start with um, what got Matthew to be in the circumstance where he essentially died um, for a brief period of time um, in the first place. This will go back about seven years. Um, In 2007, prior to March 27th of 2007, we were your atypical American family. We went about our lives every day with working and raising our kids and and living the American dream, so to speak, as cliche as that sounds. Um, But we just kind of went about life and, and doing what most other families you see out there do. Um, then Matthew had just started preschool. He was four years old at the time. And when he started, it was the first time he'd been in any type of community setting. So, of course, he picked up every little bug that came along. So after the first couple of viruses, we assumed that maybe his immune system would kick in and eventually be able to fight off these infections. And then it became more persistent with ear infections and strep throat. And after a period of maybe three months of going through round after round of antibiotics and back and forth to the doctor's office, Finally, his pediatrician said, maybe we need to look at seeing an ENT and look at having some tubes put into his ears and having his tonsils removed, which is very commonplace surgery done every day on thousands of kids. And we agreed, so we saw the the ENT, and he, of course, was 100% in total agreement with the pediatrician and said, yeah, you know, this would probably make a huge difference in these infections that he was fighting and, you know, would kind of clear all of that up and give give him a fresh start, so to speak. And prior to this, Matthew had been healthy from every other aspect as far as we knew. We had had our yearly checkups and our immunizations, and and everything was on par as far as we knew. Nothing to say from any outward appearances that there was anything else going on. So we assumed going into the surgery, it would be very routine. Um, He had the surgery scheduled. At his one-week pre-op appointment with his pediatrician, he had his blood pressure taken, and we learned after the fact that his blood pressure was a little elevated, nothing that, you know, scared them into saying that maybe we shouldn't do the surgery, but, you know, it definitely was higher than where it should have been for a child of his age. Um, the day of the surgery came. He had everything done. It went well. It was routine. The doctor came out and said, you know, we got the tonsils and adenoids out. We were able to um, get the tubes in his ears, and he should recover fine, you know, let him eat some soft foods as he's able to, and then in a couple of days you'll never know this happened. So we were anxious just to kind of, you know, be able to to start fresh and have him feeling better. We left the outpatient surgery center. Um, He was actually hungry on the way home. You know, he says, Mom, I'm hungry, I think, which was kind of unusual because he'd never had much of an appetite. Uh So we did a little bit of jello when he got home. He took a nap. And when he woke up that afternoon, he was very insistent that he didn't feel good. And he said, I just don't feel good, Mom, if something's not right. And Matthew's always been a very mature child. He's always spoke very well for his age. Um, and I tried to rationalize with him, you know, you've had surgery this morning, you've had medications, and, you know, your belly's going to feel a little bit upset. You know, your whole routine is off. And he said, no, he said, Mom, if something just doesn't feel right. He said, I know I would feel bad for Matt, he goes, but I just don't feel right. And this went on for another hour or so, and then finally he said, I think I'm going to get sick. Hmm. And he did. He began vomiting. 
And we're still thinking that, you know, this is from the anesthesia that he'd had that morning. I know my husband is very prone to nausea after he has any type of procedures from the anesthesia. So we're thinking this is going to wear off in a little bit. Um, the vomiting was, was keeping up. So we called the doctor that was on call, and they said, well, go ahead and bring him in, and let's make sure that he's not going to dehydrate. So we brought him into our local ER, and we got there about 5.30 that afternoon. They went ahead and kept him in. Um, after about four hours, when they realized that the vomiting wasn't going to stop, they decided to go ahead and admit him so they could give him medications and kind of keep an eye on him. And it was, wasn't until we got on the floor when they admitted him as a patient at about 1 o'clock that morning that they did his first blood pressure reading. Huh. And when they did it, his blood pressure was 195 over 135. Oh, my God. So high, in fact, that the nurse didn't even think her machine was working properly. She left and got another machine and repeated this two more times and then eventually brought in her charge nurse and said, you know, I need to make sure this is indeed what it is. And Because to look at him, other than him vomiting, he still wasn't displaying any other symptoms. There were no headaches or, you know, no blurry vision or anything that would commonly be associated with such severe hypertension. Mm-hmm. So after um, they decided that, yes, this is indeed correct, these machines are accurate, he was watched very closely for about another six hours. And then by 7 o'clock the next morning, I had two doctors from the intensive care unit sitting on the foot of his bed telling me, we need to put him in the intensive care unit now. Hmm. Um, there's something very seriously wrong. His blood pressure is not going down. It's going up. It was hmm. actually even higher than where it was hmm. at 1 o'clock in the morning. So we had our whole world change from that moment. We walked into the intensive care unit. You know, we don't come from medical backgrounds. This was something very, very different. And, you know, from a mother's standpoint, you're never prepared for that. There's no way anyone can prepare you for Mm -hmm. walking into a pediatric intensive care unit. These children are very sick, some of them critically ill, some of them mortally ill. And I just, I was totally in shock at how our world had changed so much within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But the main concern was trying to figure out why was his blood pressure so high and getting it fixed. And honestly, somewhere in the back of my naive mind, I'm still thinking this is something relatively simple. You know, they'll be able to figure it out and get it fixed. Mm -hmm. Didn't really understand blood pressure at the time. You know, to me, that was something that older people got. You know, my parents and my grandparents had high blood pressure. This isn't Mm -hmm. something that kids have. And then as doctors went on to tell us, you know, children who have high blood pressure can have um, heart conditions, congenital heart defects, or they can have problems with their kidneys or their adrenal glands. You know, there can be a, a variety of things that are all pretty serious that can cause children to have secondary hypertension. So there's mm-hmm. some underlying cause that's causing them to have hypertension. So right. both conditions are affecting their little bodies. So it was a matter of day after day of them running test after test trying to determine, and they were just ruling things out as they went. They ruled out there were no brain tumors. His heart looked perfect. And then once they got to his renal system, to his kidneys, they discovered that something wasn't right, specifically what it was they didn't know. And at the time, there were no pediatric nephrologists in Baton Rouge. So it was decided that we needed to have him transferred to the nephrology group at Children's Hospital in New Orleans. So all of the arrangements were made for us to do this. And, you know, every day that Matthew was in there, we saw him getting weaker and sicker. His blood pressure was, you know, so high that his little body was just fighting as hard as it could. Hmm. And as a mother, all we wanted to do was just make him better. You know, we wanted him to feel better, and it was the most helpless feeling I've ever had in my entire life because I couldn't just put a Band-Aid on it and fix it. And this was well beyond my control. It was out of my hands. And all we could do was trust what we were being told. And he had a great team of doctors that worked with him, and they were all very, very insistent on the fact that they were not going to stop until they figured out why this was happening. 
So, you know, we felt confident in what they were doing, but at the same time, we saw Matthew just every day slipping a little bit further away from us. So the day of transfer came, and this was the day that we were excited. We were looking forward to because we knew with this change to, to New Orleans, we were one step closer to a specific answer. And with an answer, then we had resolution. We could figure out a way to fix it, so to speak. Okay, so then they decided to, they, to do another surgery when you got there. Well, we were in Baton Rouge, and at that time they said they wanted to do a bedside procedure to go ahead and insert a an, uh, central line in his groin and then to reposition an arterial line that he had in his arm. Um, the arterial line was to give continuous feeds uh, to the monitor of what his blood pressure was internally inside his arteries. And the central line was just to keep him from having to keep sticking for IVs because with his blood pressure so high, he kept blowing IVs. So it was just a kind of a comfort measure, an ease measure for them to be able to have this without having to re-sticking. So the day that we were getting ready to transfer and they decided to do that, they said, we can do this bedside. Um, we'll give him a little bit of sedation. And we're we're going to need to take, we're going to have to leave him sure. at that spot because we need to take a break. Um, but when we come back, we'll be uh, get more to um, what actually, the moment of, of this near-death experience and what actually happened. We're talking today about what happens when we die. My guest is Celeste Goodwin. She and her son Matthew wrote a new book called A Boy Back from Heaven, and we'll be right back. So you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about what happens when we die with my guest, Celeste Goodwin. Her son is Matthew. We left uh, Celeste by the bedside, uh, Celeste and her family. Oh, we should say, um, Celeste, your husband is Billy, right? And yeah. Matthew has a brother who, what is his name? Connor. And, and how old was, how many years older than Matthew is, or younger than Matthew is Connor? Matthew is two years older than Connor. There's about a two-year age difference between them. Uh, okay. 
Okay, so, um, I, well, I guess he, Connor, wasn't at the bedside, but we'll be talking to, about, yeah. um, I'll be asking you later about um, his reaction to the things that Matthew said after he had his near-death experience. So we mm-hmm. left Celeste at the bedside, and Matthew, becoming uh, more and more debilitated by his soaring uh, blood pressure, and the medical personnel are trying to figure out what's wrong and, and, uh, and so that they can do something to fix it. I mean, this is outrageously high. You know, it is amazing that he didn't die just from the blood pressure. So take us back to where we left off. We were at the bedside. He had just had this procedure to do his central line and his arterial line. He woke up from the sedation, and the room was busy with people getting ready for his transfer. So we're talking to Matthew. We're having conversation, you know, looking forward to him taking his ambulance ride. And then after about three or four minutes of him being awake and lucid and interacting, his eyes rolled back in his head and he went out. And it wasn't just he went to sleep. It wasn't just he shut his eyes for a little more rest. It was actual out, like unconscious. And the nurses saw what happened and began to try to to wake him up and shake him. You know, Matthew, come on, wake up, wake up. Ran out and got the doctor. Did they they have um, an EKG on at the time or...? He did not. He was in between monitors going from his permanent monitors on the bed to the temporary monitors mm. that he would have on him in the ambulance. Mm. Okay. So he had his, his O2 stats were on. That was the only actual physical monitor that he had on at the time um, because they were in the process of changing everything over. And his O2 stats did begin to drop when this happened. Um, so that was the only thing then. And then they started working to get everything hooked back up to him so that they could make an assessment of exactly what his vitals were doing. Um, a manual blood pressure was taken at the time. His blood pressure had dropped extremely low from where it had been um, because he had had excessively high pressures. So, you know, the doctor is, is making an assessment, trying to determine what's wrong. She whispers to another doctor that's in there who turns and goes out and actually calls the PICU at Children's Hospital. And, you know, my husband and I are in the room, and we can hear this because the nurse's station was right outside of, of this little area that we were. Mm-hmm and tells the doctor at the PI in New Orleans that they didn't know if this patient was going to make it, that they were in the process of trying to assess and determine and see if they needed to resuscitate. Um, And this went on. It was documented in his chart that there was a period of three to five minutes of undetermined unconsciousness. Huh. That was no medical reason given to that from what they could see at their standpoint. Just like that, his eyes opened back up and they are as clear as they have been the entire time that he's been there. There's a collective sigh in the room. We all just, it was such a relief because as each second went by, it was more and more tense because Mm -hmm. we're seeing that as much as we wanted him to wake up, he wasn't doing that. And we're watching him from the physical side, and there was nothing that we could do to to, to wake him and get him back to us. Mm Mm-hmm. So once we got him stable enough that they were able to get him with a trauma team and get him transferred to New Orleans, the first thing that they did was have neurology get involved and do an MRI and a CT of his brain to well, check to make okay. sure there's been no stroke. Mm-hmm. Okay. So wait. Um, when he woke up, um, what did he say to you? He, when he woke up, he looked around and he says, why is everyone crying? That was his only words because he could see that everyone that was standing around was in tears. Myself, my husband, his, a good friend of mine was there, his godmother, one of the nurses. There was, you know, there was a lot of emotion that was happening in that room because the longer he was out, the more that everything just kind of amped up with the anxiety. Right. And, and did, just, he start uh, to, did he start to say, besides ask, ask, well, what did you say when he said, why is everyone crying? 
we just smiled, and I kind of jokingly said, I said, Matthew, did you have a nice nap? And he just looked at me, and he says, why is everybody crying? I said, it's okay, Matthew. I said, everything's fine. And yeah. they were working really fast to get him stabilized and get him where he needed to be. There wasn't a lot of, of downtime for us to kind of, you know, do anything else. Yes. So once he got to New Orleans and neurology, you know, the first thing they did was run these assessments of his brain and have these studies done. And, you know, I made the trip from New Orleans, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans after my husband did. And so he had been there with Matthew for the few hours it took me to get prepared and get there. So once I got into his PI room, the actual first doctor I met was the neurologist that had kind of taken over finding out what had happened to him in Baton Rouge during this period of unconsciousness. And when she came to me, she said, I have great news. She said, from a medical standpoint, his brain looks perfect. There's been no stroke. There's been no coma. And my response to her was, well, what happened? You know, we saw what happened. He was unconscious. There's a reason why these studies needed to be done. And Mm -hmm. she said, she asked me, do you believe? And just instinctively, I said, well, of course I do. I assumed, you know, she was talking about God. And of course I do, because we had been in prayer a lot this week. Yeah. And she said... The next time that you sit, sit down and you talk to God, she said, offer him up an extra prayer of thanks. And I said, you know, with all due respect, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I, you are a very respected, intelligent physician. You know, you, you should be able to give me a medical reasoning for what happened. And right. this was her reply. Right. And she was very resolved about what she was saying. And, you know, I said, I, I appreciate that, but you've got to give me more than that. And she said, sometimes in medicine, there are just things that we cannot explain. Hmm. And she left it at that. She gave us a smile and she walked off and she said, his brain is going to be fine. And she left. And, you know, I kind of sat there with a question mark. And then there was the relief that set in that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. And then it was immediately back to the concern of, okay, we have to focus on his blood pressure and his kidneys. This mm-hmm. is why we're here. We know that is great. All of that just got put to the side. So we really never gave it any more thought to that episode that had happened in Baton Rouge. We never gave any more thought to... You know, why it had happened, we just knew that everything was okay with his body mm-hmm. from that standpoint. So we, in turn, spent the next couple of weeks learning that he had renal artery stenosis, getting a game plan to get that fixed, and then getting him home. And once we got home, his whole world seemed to be on his shoulders. Just, he came home a different child. It just looked like there was something troubling him all the time. And we assumed it's just from him being sick. You know, he had been through a lot physically, emotionally over the past month. But just it was almost like there was something there that he just wasn't ready to get out. Uh-huh. And finally, after a couple of weeks of, you know, Matthew, is there anything you want to talk about? One night, he sets us down on the couch. My husband had just gotten up to go get ready for bed, and I had just put Connor to bed. And Matthew turned the TV off, and he said, I have to tell you something, but you have to promise not to get mad. And hmm. I'm thinking, after everything you've been through, I don't think there's anything you could do that would make me mad at you right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, well, what's the matter? I said, you look like something's bothering you. And he said, I have to tell you this. He said, but it's, I just don't know. I don't want you to get mad. I said, I'm not going to get mad. Just, you know, you can tell me anything. And he says, Mama, when I was in the hospital, four angels came to get me. And with that, I just stopped and I said, hold on just a second. I said, don't say anything else. And I ran to the back and I got my husband. I said, you need to come up front. Matthew's got something he wants to talk about, but I feel like you need to be in there. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me. I said, don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Come up front and sit down and listen. And when my husband got back to the living room, he repeated the same thing again. And he said, four angels came to get me. And he went on to, you know, he just kind of looked at us to see what our reaction was, which was, you know, just it's okay for you to talk. There was no, 
concern mm-hmm. or happiness. It was just neutral. Mm-hmm. And he said the day that I was going to New Orleans, he said, this is when I had these four angels come to get me. There was two men and two women. And he said, one of the women said it was time for me to go with them. And he said, I told her, no, I can't go. I have to ask my mom and dad. Mm. And she gave him assurance that it was okay. She said, your mom and dad know, and it's okay that you go with us. Mm. And he said, I just trusted her. He said, I don't know why, because I wouldn't normally do that to a stranger, but I felt like it was okay. And I said, well, I'm glad that you had that kind of comfort. I said, do you know who these people were? He says, no, Mama, I know it was two men and two women. And at the time, he hadn't divulged and we hadn't put it all together that it was actually my grandparents were two of the people that he that he supposedly walked with. And he said they started walking, and he said, Mom, it was so beautiful. And it just, the more he talked about it, the more he gleamed. I mean, it was just, you could just see it was such intensity that he was sharing it. And he said, there's just not words I can find. He goes, everything was white. He said, but it felt like nothing but love. Mm. He said, not like love I have here. He said, I love you and Daddy and Connor. He said, it was love not like that. It was bigger than that. Mm. He said, it was just so beautiful. He said, and we walked, he said, and then we reached a certain point, and he said, the lady stopped me, and she put her hand on my shoulder and said, it's not time for you to come with us. You need to go back to your mom and dad. And he said, but, you know, I'm not ready to go. And she said, it's time. You need to go back to your mom and dad. And Hmm. he said, she just turned me around. He said, I started walking the same direction that I had started. He said, and the next thing I remember was everybody standing around my bed in the hospital crying. Hmm. And so at that moment, we put it together, this was the day that he had had this period of unconsciousness in the hospital. And prior to this, he hadn't shared it with us, and we could just kind of put it aside, you know, like I said, focusing on the kidney issues. So it was not something we were prepared to hear. It was different, um, unusual, but it was so real and so profound to him that the more he talked about it and the more he realized that he wasn't being judged for what he was saying, yeah. the more comfortable he became. And, it, you know, the weight looked like it was starting to lift off of his shoulders. And he just went on to describe how beautiful it was. And from that point on, it just became part of what we knew in our family. You know, we would talk about it, and as he wanted to, you know, we really didn't push the issue. And when we went to bed that night, I told my husband, you know, if he wants to talk about it, I want him to feel open to do it, but I'm not going to push him to do it. And not knowing if he would ever mention it again, but apparently it was something that weighed pretty close to his heart because there were, you know, different times that he would bring it up and we would discuss it. And it just kind of became part of our family. We knew that. And, you know, we would talk about when Matthew almost died and what he saw. Uh-huh. So about three weeks later, everything was kind of getting back into a normal pattern. You know, Matthew was in a normal routine, our new normal with his blood pressure medicines and his new change in diet and things of that nature. And I said, okay, let me get in my mind into something else. And I said, I wanted to get into a picture project. We had just built a house a few months before Matthew had gotten sick. Wanted to put some pictures on the wall. And I realized I had no pictures of my family or my husband's family anywhere in our house. And we had had everything packed up for quite a while in the process of building our house. So, and I knew in my mind which pictures that I wanted to get out. And I thought, you know, even in our other house, I didn't have any pictures of my grandparents. And my grandmother had passed away when I was 14, never met my grandfather. But I said, you know, while I'm doing this project, this would be a good time to get those out. And there was a picture that kept coming to mind that I remembered as a little girl seeing when we would sit down and watch family slideshows. We would pull out the old box and the screen and the projector and get the dusty slides out. And there was always this really picture, really great picture of my grandparents on their 50th wedding anniversary of my grandfather kissing her on the cheek. And I said, I would Mm -hmm. love to be able to have that. 
Mm. So I ran to my mom, dug it out of a slide box, scanned it, printed it out, and stuck it on my shelf. And I said, that will suffice until, you know, I can get something a little more professionally printed and get a frame for it. And Matthew comes bouncing back in my office, and he comes in just to give me a hug. And he says, what you doing, Mom? And I said, I'm working on my picture project. I'm getting ready to pick this up. We're going to start dinner. And he said, well, I just wanted to come tell you I love you. And he turned around to go back up front and play with his brother. And when he did, he glanced up and he saw the picture on my shelf. And he stopped in his tracks. And he walked up to my shelf and he reached for the picture. And he said, who is this? I mean, in a, in a tone very unlike Matthew. He's a very mm-hmm. passive child. He's not aggressive. But there was a definite tone of concern of why I had this picture. And I said, well, it's my grandparents. You know, I said, I wanted to put some pictures out of our family. I said, this is one that I would like to put out, and I printed it. And he said, this is not your grandparents. How do you know these people? Huh. And I said, no, baby, these, these are my grandparents. <laughs> you know. And he said, no, Mom. And he said, these are the angels that came to get me. These are two of them. And with that, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. Wow. And by this time, he has tears in his eyes. And I said, Matthew, I said, these are my grandparents. And he said, I have seen these people. This is the lady that held my hand and spoke to me. Mm, And it just, it gave me chills. I mean, this was affirmation to everything I had thought about and prayed for over the years, wishing my grandmother could see my family and see my life as it is as an adult and realizing Uh she sees more than what we realize. Wow. Well, we need to, uh, we need to... (laughs) To, and this is a good place to pause and to take a break because I think uh, we all need to sort of digest that a little bit. My guest is Celeste Goodwin. Her son, um, who we've just been talking about, is Matthew. The book that they've written together is called A Boy Back from Heaven. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about what happens when we die with the mother of a child who, um, for all intensive purposes, (laughs) intents and purposes, died for three to five minutes. Um, while he was in, or well, 
going from intensive care and being ready to be transferred to another hospital, a more intense hospital. Uh, Celeste Goodwin and uh, the book that they've just written together just come out is called A Boy Back from Heaven. Now, Celeste, you in this you were just telling us about um, how he identified, um, and this was a few months later after this experience, right? That he yes. Okay. Now, I, so I, I want you to tell us more about what he told you, because um, as time went along, he was telling you more and more about what his experience was in heaven. And um, uh, I, 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 one thing that I wanted to know is, he said at first that the uh, angel, the four angels who came to get him, said to come with them, and he said, I have to ask my mother. But then, but then they said, no, it's okay, you can come with us. And then one of them said, go back. So how, did, how does he explain, or how do you explain, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, what, how do you explain that? Why did they tell him to come with them, and then they told him to go back? Right. When, when Matthew saw this picture of my grandparents in my office, this kind of opened a good space for us to be able to talk a little deeper about it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he was, there was some affirmation there that there was actually people that he could associate with these angels that he saw. Right. So after we finished dinner that night and we sat down, I said, this is a really good opportunity for us to kind of talk more about it. And, and we did. And I said, Matthew, I said, you know, what you saw really it made you happy. I said, but can you share that with us? Can you tell me what you saw? Because at that point, I wanted him to give me more details. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can, is there more that you can tell me other than it was just white and it was beautiful? And he said whenever he started walking, he said there was almost like a gray door that he walked through. And he said he went from this gray door where it was kind of dark and dim into just this most beautiful, profound white light. And he said it was just brilliant was the word that he used at the time. Uh-huh. For four years old is not a word that yeah. was a part of our everyday vernacular. Yes. And he said it was just brilliant. And he said it felt like love. And he said the four angels were there. I knew it was two men and two women. And, you know, again, he recounted to us how they said it was time to go and he wanted to ask us, but then felt secure in going with them, even though he didn't have our permission, so to speak, and walked with them. And he said, I'm looking at as we walked, Mom. And he said, it seemed like we walked for just a little while. He said, I don't know how long it was. He said, but the further we walked, the happier I got. He said, I felt so much better the further we went. And he said, and I didn't feel bad when I was there. He said, when I was in the hospital, I felt bad. He said, but when I went to this place, I didn't feel that anymore. He said, all I felt was happy. Hmm. He said, it was white. Everywhere I looked was white. He said, it was almost like different shades of it. But he said, the road, the path that they were on was white. He said, the robes that they were wearing were white. He said, but there was a slight blue outline that went around the road. He said, not necessarily part of the material, but it was almost like an outline around the robes. He said he could see their faces, and he could see, you know, where their, their arms would come out of the, the robes, and then it went down to their ankles. So he was very specific in, in how the length of the arms and the legs were on them. And he said the only one that ever spoke to him was actually the older lady who we, you know, eventually found out was my grandmother. Uh-huh. He said that the other older man that he thought recognized as my grandfather held his hand as well, but never actually spoke to him. And he said when we reached that point where they said it was time to turn around, he said that's when, you know, we had our discussion about it was time for them to, him to come back to us. And he said, and I didn't want to go. And that, he was more concerned about me being mad that he didn't want to come back. Mm-hmm. When he initially shared everything with us, he said, I was so scared you were going to be mad I didn't want to come back. And all I could tell him was, Matthew, I'm glad that you did, but 
you know, how amazing is it that you were somewhere that you felt that much love and that much security? Mm-hmm. And when he first shared the story with us, his question very, very vividly to us was, does that mean that I died? Mm-hmm. Which, there's no answer that you have for that as a parent. And I told him, Matthew, I don't know that. I don't have that answer. And his daddy and I just assured him that the only person that will ever be able to answer that is God. And one day he'll have the opportunity to ask him. You know, what he shared with us was beautiful. And from what, you know, we've learned growing up and what we've known from, through society and other experiences, these are similar experiences to other people who have had near-death experiences. But I don't know that he did or he didn't. You know, I said, do you feel like you did? He said, I felt like I was on a path to see Jesus. He said, I felt like if I would have kept walking, that's where I would have ended up, which was so so different for us. We are not religious zealous. You know, we're not pastors or ministers or things like that. We're just a family. We're just an American family. And at the time, I mean, we went to church sporadically. I wouldn't say that we were there every Sunday. Um, but we, there wasn't a whole lot that had been introduced or given to him about Scripture or heaven or death. There hadn't even been a discussion of death in our household. We had never lost anyone that we'd had to have that discussion with him, not even a pet at that point. So it's not something that he had seen or experienced from any other aspect other than what he had personally felt and what he had saw in his journey. Well, so, but so what he knew about Jesus, he got from the times that you did go to church. Right, right. Uh-huh. And had he read anything, any books about Jesus? No, and at the time, the preschool that he was in, it was um, a Christian preschool. It was Parkview Baptist Preschool. And I even went to his teacher, you know, after all of this had come to light and asked her questions. I said, can you tell me what all you have talked about in class? I know that we get the weekly updates. From March on, he hadn't even been at school because he had been so sick. And prior to that, the months leading up to that, his attendance was very sporadic. It was only a four-day-a-week preschool that he went half days. So his time was there, there was very limited. And then there had been so many illnesses prior to his surgery that he wasn't there all the time. And I said, you know, specifically, I'm wondering, have you talked about death? Have you talked about heaven? And she said, no, we haven't covered any of that. She said the basis of what we've covered has been the basic Bible stories, you know, Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark and Moses and those type of things. She said, but to get into anything deeper than that or more spiritual than that to apply personally, they really hadn't gotten to that point yet. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't anything that he had seen from school. And... We, my husband and I sat down and discussed it, and it was like, other than him knowing this and this being nothing but fact for him, I can't imagine where he would have been exposed to this because it hadn't come from, from within our home or from within our family. So, um, so how, okay, how did, this affect, did it, how did this affect his brother? Deeply. Connor was only two at the time, and I don't think enough credit is given to siblings, younger siblings or older siblings that have, you know, brothers or sisters that are sick, especially those that are chronically ill, because they go through a whole range of emotions. Mm -hmm. When their sibling is in the hospital, they're separated from them, then they're separated from their family, because one, if not both parents, are usually with the Mm -hmm. other child, and in our case, both of us were. So he was left, you know, with our family, my parents and my husband's parents, so we knew he was cared for, but... There was that separation there, and, right. you know, it was something that even to this day, it's still a, an ongoing thing of us healing from that, and I think that he'll always have some sort of separation anxiety mm-hmm. when it comes to someone leaving because he doesn't know when they're coming back. Is mm-hmm. it an hour? Is it in a week? You just never know. 
Mm-hmm. So now that they're both older, Matthew is 11, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so Connor is, is nine. So do they talk about this? I mean, you know, now that he can, now that Connor can understand a little more, has, do you, has Matthew, well, has Connor been at family discussions or has Connor, I mean, has Matthew talked to him about it? Yes, he has. And this is something that we've been very open in our family. We've been open with our friends and, you know, our circle of people since Matthew shared this with us. And even through, you know, presentations that we do with pediatric blood pressure awareness that we do on that side, a lot of times this comes up in our presentations because, you know, the the journey that we've walked in from a spiritual standpoint is a huge part of his whole experience. You know, it's not all of it, and it's not all high blood pressure. It all goes together. So, you know, we've discussed that, and there's people who have known about it. But, you know, Connor has taken a very active interest in, in Matthew. He's probably his biggest cheerleader. Loves his brother more than anything. But he's been very affected by it. But I would say in a positive way. I think it's deepened our faith. It's deepened our, our ability to know that there is something more than what we have here. What is it specifically? Matthew's the only one that's seen it. I haven't. My husband hasn't. Connor hasn't. But we learned through what he shared with us. And I think it's made us grow deeper as a family. It's, it's strengthened the bond that Matthew and Connor have um, because, you know, as far as we're concerned, Matthew was that close to death. And, you know, we strongly believe that that was a path to heaven that he was walking. And for whatever reason, he was called back. It wasn't his time. And there was something more purposeful that he needed to do here on earth before he goes into that kingdom. Well, you know, and, I mean, it would seem, now th- you said that there was this three to five minute period um, this unknown, this mysterious sort of three to five minute period that mm-hmm. this was all happening. So it, it, does it make you think um, the coming back, does it make you think that that the prayers that, you know, I presume that that you and your husband, as he was went into this, you know, as people were freaking out and right. calling the other doctor and so on, I, I imagine that you and your husband were praying, if not, you know, getting down on your knees, certainly in your mind you were praying. Do you think that, is that what you've decided um, for yourselves that that happened, that God heard you and, and uh, you know, felt that you really needed him to come back? I mean, you, haven't you come up with some kind of explanation for yourself as to why you think he came back? I honestly think that he has a deeper purpose here. And I know that it's, you know, we'll never see that until his life is done and we see what that purpose Uh was. But every day that he lives, there's more that comes through it. We prayed, we prayed insistently for him to come back, just wake up, open your eyes. Uh I don't think I've ever wished for anything more stronger than that. Uh Now, whether that was God saying, I'm answering your prayer specifically, or there is, that was not in his plan at that point. His life's plan did not it didn't end right there. There was more that he needed to do here. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there was more purpose in, in what was being done. And, you know, maybe our prayers were heard in there. But I don't know if it was necessarily a selfish answer of my prayer and my husband's prayer. Mm. Because I believe that there is a, a plan and purpose for everyone. It may not always be what we want it to be. But there's plan and purpose in everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what about, you know, there's so much bullying going on these days. Um, and especially now that you've written the book, and so more and more people are are hearing this story, um, has um, has Matthew been? You know, have kids? Kids can be cruel, as you know, <laughs> at school, right. and and especially with something like this because it's so scary. Like no one really, you know, it's scary to think about these things. So, right. So and it's not um, the norm. Yeah, it's not the everyday topic. He's been very fortunate that. 
he's had such a great support system, not only from his friends, but his, his school system. And, you know, everybody has been very embracing of this. And there's always those that have questions. And I think more of the questions that he's gotten has been out of curiosity mm-hmm. as opposed to skepticism. You know, there are the skeptics that are there, but it's more of a curiosity. People want to know, well, this hasn't happened to a lot of people, but there are more and more people that are coming mm-hmm. forward with it. And, and now, and, and we, need to take, we need to take another break, but I want to talk about that when we come back. Some of the things, some of the ways that you've been, now that you've been looking into it, some of the ways that some of the um, other people's experiences are similar and some ways that they're different. So um, we need to take a break. My guest is Celeste Goodwin. Her son is Matthew. Um, The book that they've written together is called A Boy Back from Heaven. Obviously a fascinating story. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I want to get back on to the story here. This is all, you know, of course there's no way that any of us can prove this, although I must say that Matthew, um, pointing to your grandparents and... um, I mean, since perhaps he, well, let me just reintroduce my guest, Celeste Goodwin. We're talking about what happens when we die in their book. She and her son Matthew wrote, is a boy back from heaven. And when Matthew came back from heaven, um, he identified your grandparents as the, as two of the four angels. Um, is there, now, from what you said so far, it doesn't seem as though he would have seen those pictures or maybe heard anything much about them before. No, prior to that, he wouldn't. And my grandparents lived in Kentucky. We live in South Louisiana. Uh, my mom had nine brothers and sisters, which all still live in Kentucky. Those that are still living, my mom moved here. So it's not like he was walking into Aunt Sue's house or Aunt Joan's house and to see pictures of my grandparents all the time. They just weren't displayed. Uh-huh. And my mom, like I said, all of her pictures were in old slide boxes, you uh-huh. know, other than pictures of, like, us, her children, there really weren't any that were displayed or put out for uh-huh. him to have seen or, you know, witnessed that before, and there were none in, in my home, of course. And so um, during the break, Celeste was um, telling me about how, um, because we're going to talk about what other, you know, 
what critiques there are, what other near-death experiences, what people have said in theirs, and so on. And, and Celeste was mentioning that, her, that, the, that Matthew's doctor had said that even though there's sometimes a medication uh, given that could account for something where people go unconscious, I guess you were starting to say, that mm-hmm. that wasn't the case in, in this case. And, you know, what's interesting I wanted to mention is that this surgery, well, first of all, tonsils, <laughs> you know, tonsillectomies are, spo- are supposed to be routine. Of course, there was Jahi McMath just recently who now is in a vegetative state of some sort um, mm-hmm. from a, a tonsillectomy. But, um, but also the, the bedside procedures that you were talking about, an arterial line and so on, those are, are really common um, I mean, well, you know, not that everybody in the hospital gets that, but they're not. They're, they usually don't uh, result in death. They're relatively common um, right. hospital procedures. It's just that's not the reason why some, someone is getting those procedures because they have something else. It's not that isn't a curative kind of procedure. It's part of the of the medical treatment. It's not like a surgery or, per se, really. So, um, so let's tell us about how um, your son's. Uh, description of what happened to him compares to some of the other near-death experiences that you've heard. But since Matthew shared this with us, of course, we had a curiosity to see who else has experienced this, who else has shared it. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that there's more people having these experiences. I think there's more people who are willing to openly talk about it. Because yes. before, you just don't know the public perception. Are yes. people going to think I'm crazy? And, right. you know, did they make this up? Or whatever it may be. But I think as more and more stories come out, the people who have had these experiences are able to, to kind of more freely express it and yes. feel like they won't be so harshly criticized, you'll always have skeptics. And the way that I've told Matthew from day one when, you know, it was the question, do you think people are going to believe me or not? And I said, Matthew, you are the only one that knows what happened. And there's not another person on earth that can tell you whether this did or did not happen mm-hmm. to you. There is one person that you will answer to one day, and when you do, you'll never be able to share that with us again. <laughs> so for anyone to say that this can happen or this can't happen, well, have you had it happen? Right. How can you back it up or base it? And, right. you know, you'll always have skeptics. There's always people on both sides of it. And all we can do is just share what happened. But to see where there's differences or similarities, one thing that is always very commonly used in these near-death experience descriptions is the white light. The color white is always very prominent in these descriptions to varying degrees. Um, Some people, I think, have longer times wherever they are on this journey and are able to see more as they progress into it because as the experiences are shared, they see a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. So as their journey goes on, they're able to see more. And if they're there longer, then I think they have more experiences to share. And, of course, I think the adults that see it, you just have the vocabulary and the vernacular to be able to to put into words the things that you're seeing. Mm. You know, Matthew's experience was what he saw with the four-year-old eyes and the four-year-old mind. And even though he had words that are not part of his everyday vernacular, it was still, it was his experience, as simple as it was, nothing over the top. It's just what he felt and what his story was. And how has this changed him? He is probably one of the deepest children I know, an adult. I mean, to sit and listen to him, who, someone who has as much faith as he does, going through all that he's been through, because his medical journey didn't stop there. It's been seven years of chronic illness and kidney disease and different things that have come up. He'll never be without this, but he finds a way to go along every day with just growing like he should, maturing like he should, and he handles it like such a little trooper. But his walk in his faith is so deep. You know, we have learned and, and built our spiritual life deeper because of what has happened. And I feel like we have so much to be thankful for. We're so blessed. 
And Matthew has always said from day one after he shared this with us, I will never fear death. And for a child to have that, that in his heart and that statement, it, it's amazing, it's profound. Because yes. even as an adult, I feared it until Matthew was able to allow me to see it from a different side. You know, when people die, it, the physical side is gone, but there's so much more that lives on and where they go. You know, it, it, it's much deeper than the physical side. The body ceases, but from there, the soul continues on to such a beautiful place. And what does he want to be when he grows up? He wants to be a pediatric nephrologist. <laughs> Given as much time as he's, he's spent in the hospital in the doctor's office, uh-huh. he, he has an affinity for what they do, and he has been impacted greatly by the amazing doctors he has. And then he's hoping to eventually go to med school, and he's, he's off to a good start right now. He's an honor student and continues to, to plug along and, and achieve as high as he can. Hmm. And does he find, is, is he, does he find his peers... I mean, what about when he interacts with his peers who are into video games or into, uh, you know, um, things that maybe to him just don't seem important at this point? No, he does. I mean, he still manages to be an 11-year-old because there are the things that are important to an 11-year-old, and that would be the occasional birthday sleepover with whoever's (laughs) birthday it is this week and, you know, going to play laser tag or playing video games or whatever it may be. But he has a really good group of friends. And, you know, his core group of friends, they've been together for many years. And these children have experienced a lot of Matthew's medical hardships with him. Because Mm -hmm. when he's away from school and he's away from his his core group of people, they miss him, you know. And it's impacted those kids. And I think they've learned a lot as far as empathy for other people and understanding, you know, bad things can happen sometimes, but you know, you hold steady to your faith and, and things will get better. There's a brighter light to come. Yes. Um, but he has <laughs> Literally. a great group that supports him. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> well, that is, um, I mean, so does he have a feeling, though, that, I mean, does he sometimes say things about things in life, I don't know, something in the news or um, that, because the, that reflects a greater understanding uh, or a gr- coming from a, a greater, a deeper perspective than an 11-year-old. He does. I mean, to, to hear him approach any subject, whether it's a news story or whether it's something that's happening you know, in our community or socially, he sees it from the eyes of someone who's beyond, mature well beyond his 11 years. Um, you know, to have conversations with him is so deep. It's not like sitting and talking to a kid because he does go so much deeper than that. Um, he is fascinated by the plight of others and, and wanting to help others and do what he can to uplift people when he can. He is the biggest proponent of nobody ever feeling ostracized or nobody ever feeling like, you know, they're lesser than someone else. And I think a lot of that goes to just how much he's had to deal with um, health-wise and emotionally and spiritually. Um, but he's, he is wise beyond his years. And, well, and maybe, Matthew, maybe sorry, also, you know, he was saying that he felt such profound love there. Do you think that maybe that's part of it that he took back with him and that that's how he's able to be empathic and and want to share the love? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because for his description of where he was and to feel that kind of unconditional love, and you know, he's telling his mom there was no sin there. There was nothing bad. It was just all happy. It was all good. And he said, that's not like it is on earth. You know, there are bad things that happen. There are people who have emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a deep discussion about emotions about two weeks ago and how the different range of emotions and what causes them. And he said, Mom, he said, when people go to heaven, 
you don't have any of that. It is just as pure and happy as it can be. <laughs> no drama. <laughs> no, no drama. drama. <laughs> no drama. <laughs> well, Celeste, unfortunately, we're we're out of time, but this has been really fascinating. And of course, you know, like you even told Matthew, I mean, nobody, we we all can't know until we know, until we're there, you know, until we're, wherever there is. And um, but. It's really, first of all, it's it's very uplifting, and and uh, it would be nice if that were if what he saw was actually where we're all going to go. So, um, so, so it's certainly a nice, something nice to hold on to, a thought to hold on to when when things get kind of bad. And and today, looking at all the headlines, and as I was saying at the beginning, um, it's nice to think not that we would voluntarily walk that walked into that light. But it's nice to think that uh, that maybe there is something positive that lay ahead. So thank you very much, my guest Celeste Goodwin. The book is called "A Book a, Bo- a Boy Back from Heaven." A Boy Back from Heaven. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, at Amazon, wherever books are sold. And also, um, you can go to Celeste's website, which is celestegoodwin.com. C E L E S T Goodwin. dot com. So thank you again, Celeste. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 